number of years ago when uh, smartphones were first starting to become popular, and at the time I was still carrying one of those old-fashioned flip phones. Uh, sometimes I wish I, I had one of those again. Um, but um, many of my friends were ardent supporters of a product called BlackBerry. And uh, in fact, I remember one of my, my bosses, she was such a, a fan of BlackBerry, she was so addicted to it, we used to joke with her, we called her Crackberry. And uh, this was a, a phone that had a very loyal, very enthusiastic following. The Waterloo-based company that produced the BlackBerry line was at one time a world leader in smartphone technology, but today uh, you'll notice you don't hear that much about BlackBerry. The BlackBerry is practically dead. The company that founded BlackBerry is almost irrelevant today. In a Globe and Mail article uh, written about 10 years ago, here's what the editor said about BlackBerry's fall from, gr from grace. He wrote, once a fast-moving innovator that kept two steps ahead of the competition, RIM grew into a stumbling corporation, blinded by its own success and unable to replicate it. Several years ago, it owned the smartphone world. Even U.S. President Barack Obama was a BlackBerry addict. But after new rivals redefined the market, RIM responded with a string of devices that were late to market, missed the mark with consumers, and opened dangerous fault lines across the organization. And the article goes on to make it very clear that much of BlackBerry's stumbling and bumbling was due to a failure on the part of its corporate leadership. All of the leaders, and especially the, uh, the CEO who, who made crucial missteps, poor decisions, and ultimately led to this cutting-edge company falling far behind. When leaders fail, it's often the case that the organizations that they lead also suffer the consequences. Now, the church, of course, is not a corporation. It's not to be led as a corporation. But uh, the principle is true in the corporate world. Sadly, it's also true within the Church of Christ, where poor spiritual leadership has devastating effects upon the church. And if you've been in the church for any amount of time, you will know that this is true. The church that I pastor uh, in Welland, Rosedale Baptist Church, was a church that had uh, very good and godly leadership in the 1980s. The church thrived. Uh, many people were saved in the community. Many Roman Catholics came to know Christ, and the church grew and was built up. And there was a string of uh, leaders and pastors in the 1990s uh, that sadly the church started to decline. And there was moral failures, there was some uh, liberal theology that had crept into the church, and over the course of 10 years, a thriving work of God was decimated. And uh, the pastor that, that came in before me began to, uh, to emphasize some of the marks that you've been talking about in these sermon series. What does it look like to have a healthy biblical church? And uh, he faithfully uh, started to preach the gospel again, expository preaching of the Word and leading people in, in prayer. And uh, one of the other things that he did was he, he moved the leadership from uh, a single elder to a plurality of elders in the church, moving to a, a biblical model of eldership. And by God's grace, uh, uh, good leadership again, and God's Spirit working through His Word has uh, caused our church once again to grow and to thrive, which has been very encouraging uh, to see. It's difficult to underestimate the importance of godly, qualified leadership within the church. That's why the Bible contains so much instruction in both the Old and the New Testament, and I'm happy that Lucas read not only New Testament instruction, but Old Testament instruction 
about the shepherds and the, the character of uh, godly shepherds. Well, this morning, uh, your pastor has invited me to contribute to your sermon series on marks of a healthy church. We're going to look at a passage from Acts chapter 20. There are many uh, different passages that we could go to this morning that teach us about biblical leadership and specifically biblical eldership. <clears throat> but I've chosen Acts 20 as this text contains very important instruction for elders. And uh, this instruction was given long ago by the Apostle Paul to a group of elders in the city of Ephesus. By the way, uh, just in terms of terminology, uh, there are three terms in the New Testament that are synonymous. They mean the same thing. The elder means the same thing as the pastor. By the way, pastor and shepherd are the same word. Poimen uh, means shepherd. Uh, presbyteros, elder, and then episkopos, which means the bishop or the overseer. These words are used interchangeably, and uh, we could even see that right here in Acts chapter 20. And so this is instruction given to the elders or to the pastors in the church of Ephesus. So Acts 20, I'm going to be focusing primarily verse 17 to the end of the chapter, but let's back up a little bit in our reading. We'll start reading at verse 7 and go all the way to the end of the chapter. I remind you as I read, this is God's inspired and inerrant word. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive, and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And, and when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to, to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos. And the day after that we went to Miletus, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus, and he called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Spirit testifies to me, in every city imprisonment and afflictions await. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. 
Therefore I testify to you this day, I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. May the Lord add his blessing to this reading of his word. Well, the passage that we just read here in Acts chapter 20, this brings Paul's third missionary journey to a conclusion. Paul is leaving the city of Troas. He's on his way back to Jerusalem. It was Paul's original intent to be in Jerusalem by the time of the Passover, but a threat on his life caused him to detour to the city of Troas. And it was in Troas he preached the all-night sermon, and he put one of the young men named Eutychus to sleep, and then raised that young man from the dead. And I'm not sure about Lucas's uh, preaching, if he preaches that long that he puts you to sleep, but thankfully you don't have a balcony here in Rosedale Hall, so, so you're safe. But Paul's plan at this point in the narrative is to be in Jerusalem by Pentecost. But before taking the long trip back to Jerusalem, there is one more stop that the apostle wants to make. Paul is determined to set some of his time aside to meet with his pastoral colleagues in Ephesus, these men who he had previously won to Christ. He had patiently discipled them. He had installed these men as shepherds of the church before moving on to Macedonia and and Greece. And Paul, if you know the book of Acts, you know he he invested sacrificially in the city of Ephesus. He he spent two years in Ephesus. Two years he, he lectured every day in the hall of Tyrannus while continuing to make tents to pay the bills. And now Paul has sensed the time has come for him to leave Asia. And the thing that weighs most heavily on Paul's mind as he is leaving this part of the world are the leaders, the ones who would be the foundation of of this church and the other churches. As a faithful pastor, Paul recognized with clarity how important godly leadership would be for the long-term health of the church in Ephesus. And so he summons this familiar group of men. He calls them to meet him at the port city of Miletus, and then he delivers the address that we just read. The sermon that Paul preaches to the elders breaks down into two main sections, and these will form the two main points of the message today. From verses 17 to 27, and again in verses 33 to 35, Paul focuses on his own personal example, his own example. And then in verses 28 to 32, the apostle gives direct exhortation to the elders in Ephesus, 
And this is teaching here in this part of Acts that parallels very closely the exhortation we find in the pastoral epistles in First and Second Timothy and also in Titus. And so as we work our way through the text this morning, it's important for us to keep in mind the instruction contained in these verses applies most directly to pastors and leaders in the local church. And so here in your own context at Evergreen, this passage applies most directly to your pastor. It applies most directly to Pastor Lucas and to other qualified men that you will identify and install as the church moves forward. And I, I've noticed just looking around a few of uh, books on biblical eldership that uh, there, there's training that's happening on it, happening, and, and that is a, a wonderful thing to see. But even though this text applies most directly to pastors, you shouldn't check out this morning because instruction on biblical leadership is essential for all of God's people to understand and embrace. It is the local church, after all, that acts as a corporate body to identify spiritual gifts for ministry. It's the local church, the corporate body, that calls pastors or elders into leadership roles. It's the assembly, it is the local church body that keeps elders accountable to a biblical standard of conduct in ministry. And so this isn't only a passage for Lucas, this is a passage for you. It's a passage for all of us, and my prayer is that this passage will spur you on to support and to encourage and to pray diligently for Pastor Lucas. And not only for Lucas, but to pray diligently for all of the other qualified leaders that the Lord is going to raise up for this local assembly, so that together these men will lead in a way that honors the Lord and advances the interests of the kingdom here in Smith Falls. And so with that introduction to the text, let us begin our time in the Word looking at Paul's personal example. And again, this is verses 17 to 27. You know, when you read through the New Testament, it, it, it's really quite amazing how many times Jesus and Paul point to their own example as a pattern for others to imitate. Think about Jesus. After washing the disciples' feet, much to the shock of Peter, Jesus said the following words, John 13, 14, and 15. Jesus says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. And it's no coincidence, brothers and sisters, that the Lord Jesus spent the majority of his ministry years with 12 specifically chosen men. He spent far more of his time with the 12 disciples than he did with the masses and with the crowds of people. Why? Well, Jesus invested deeply in the lives of a few select disciples because his aim was to set an example. It was to set a pattern of ministry that those men would follow and replicate after his departure. Jesus' strategy in ministry was not to win as many converts as possible before he went back to the Father. Jesus' strategy in ministry was to leave behind 12 disciples who were trained, who were equipped, who were empowered by the Spirit to continue on in the work that he had begun. And so the New Testament book that we're looking at this morning, it's, it's most often called the Acts of the Apostles. A better title in one sense would be the Acts of Jesus through the Apostles. And that's really what this book is, the Acts of Jesus through the Apostles. The amazing things that we see in this book are things that Jesus continues to do through the disciples and by the power of the Spirit. 
and the foundation of everything that we find in the book of Acts, all the amazing things that Paul and the apostles are doing and teaching, it is the example in the ministry of Christ that he laid out for them during those three years of intentional ministry. And so Jesus led the twelve disciples by example. If you look at Paul's epistles, you will notice that Paul also leads the church by personal example. 1 Corinthians 4.16, Paul says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. A few pages over, 1 Corinthians 11.1, the same apostle says, be imitators of me as I am an imitator of Christ. Philippians 3.17, Paul says, brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. 1 Thessalonians 1.6, Paul says, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Spirit. And finally, Paul gives these words of counsel to a young pastor named Timothy, who was one of the pastors in the church of Ephesus, 2 Timothy 2.2. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses... Entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Are you starting to get the picture, friends, how crucial Paul's example was as he was training up leaders for the Gentile churches? And if Paul felt it was necessary for leaders in the early church to follow his example as he imitated the example of the Lord Jesus, how important is it for us today, the distance of 2,000 years to study the life and the ministry of Jesus and of Paul, and to take very seriously these inspired words of instruction to the church leadership. And so if you look carefully at the text here in Acts 20, beginning in verse 17, you will notice several things that Paul highlights from his own example that he wants us to imitate. The first thing Paul highlights for the benefit of these, this group of pastors is Paul's humility in serving the Lord. Look again with me at the text. Look at verse 18. The apostle says, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. You know, in the corporate world of 21st century North America, as in the Greek culture of Paul's day 2,000 years ago, humility was not considered to be a virtue that would get you ahead. Humility is often seen by the non-believing world as a liability. Humility is seen as a lamentable expression of weakness and vulnerability. And in a world and culture like ours that has embraced the Darwinian notion that only the strongest and the most fit survive, we North Americans grow up believing in a sense that the quickest way to the top of the social totem pole is to look out for number one. Promote yourself, even if that means stepping on a few people on your way to the top. Humility is not often seen as the mark of a strong and successful leader, but the kingdom that Jesus and the apostles proclaim is an upside-down kingdom. Jesus says, in my kingdom, the last will be first. In the economics of God's kingdom, humility is the most precious resource for leaders in the church. It is a fruit that the Holy Spirit produces. It's a characteristic not only for pastors, it's, it's a characteristic of all Christians and especially of those who he's placed in positions of spiritual leadership. Now, we know what the Apostle Paul was like. The Apostle Paul was no wimp. 
He was no pushover. Paul was a strong man. He was a strong leader. He was capable. He did not pull punches when it came to the truth of the gospel. The apostle Paul was also an immensely humble man, as were all of the apostles of the Lord. Read carefully through the letters of Paul, and you'll notice what Paul's favorite uh, label for himself, favorite title for himself is. Does anybody know? He likes the title Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, but he likes another one too. The least of the apostles? Somebody said it. A servant. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. In fact, doulos, the word translated servant, is slave. Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. Actually, the, the Legacy uh, Standard Bible, which has recently been published, translates doulos as slave consistently in the New Testament. So many of our English Bibles try to tone it down a little bit. Paul, a servant of Christ, but the Greek text is clear. Paul viewed himself as a slave of Christ, one who was fully committed to doing the will of the Master. At one time, Paul was a slave to sin, as all of us were. He was following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience. But you'll remember that day in recorded in the book of Acts, where God confronted Saul of Tarsus, this smug, proud, religious Pharisee. He was the cream of the crop. He'd been selected and trained up by Rabbi Gamaliel himself. And in an instant of blinding light, this self-righteous, pharisaical, religious zealot was instantly humbled into the very dust of the earth. And he was blinded. He couldn't see for several days. And on the road to Damascus, the Apostle Paul experienced a change of allegiance. He went from slavery to sin to slavery to Christ. And friends, if you know Christ as Lord and Savior, you have also experienced that same kind of transformation. At one time, we all served the hard and relentless taskmaster of sin. We were enslaved by our fallen nature. We were in bondage under the law of God, its righteous demands. We knew the righteous standard of God's moral law, but we were completely powerless to keep God's law. But in love and kindness, Jesus entered our hopeless story, and He purchased us out of our miserable slavery to sin. And now we belong to a new master. We are all of us slaves of Christ, redeemed, ransomed to live for Him in His glory alone. Now, does that sound a little extreme to you? We don't like the language of, of slavery. It sounds a little bit extreme. It sounds a little radical that Paul considers himself a slave of Christ. Well, I sure hope it sounds extreme and radical because God's kingdom is not like the kingdom of this world. In God's kingdom, the way up is the way down. You desire to be great in the kingdom of God. You desire to accomplish great things for the glory of God. You must, first of all, adopt the posture of a humble slave. You must die to yourself. You must pick up your cross daily. You must follow after Christ. If you truly desire to experience freedom in life, the answer is not to cast off the Christian faith and separate yourself from God. The answer is not a, a foolish attempt to live independently from the Creator, to live autonomously. No, friends, the only way to experience true freedom and joy in this life and in the life to come is to place yourself under the lordship and the kingship and the authority of Jesus Christ and to give up your rights to Him. 
And so the apostle testifies in verse 19, he served the Lord with humility. And not surprisingly, the verb that's translated there, to serve, that is the Greek verb duluo, which means to do the work of a Roman slave, to do the work of a doulos. Paul's humility as a leader in the church ultimately stems from the humility of his own master Christ, who is humble and servant-hearted in every way, fully submitted to the will of the Father. Over in Philippians chapter 2, there's a wonderful passage. It's very likely an early hymn that was sung, an early creed that was memorized. It speaks of the humility of Christ, and that sets the standard for all Christian leaders in the church. Paul says, "...have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus." who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, slave, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Apostle Paul, as a leader in the church, intentionally patterned his life and ministry after that of Christ, the humble king of the upside-down kingdom where the weak are strong, and the foolish are wise, and the poor are rich, and the last are first, where the mourners rejoice. But how exactly did Paul's humility play out over the course of his pastoral ministry? Well, he tells us here, we're reminded here in verse 20, the Apostle Paul consistently bore the burdens of others around him, even to the point of shedding tears. Paul was a leader in the church who experienced a deep sense of grief and sorrow when he saw the effects of sin all around him. And I'm sure that if if we, we ever find the original manuscripts, or if those manuscripts that Paul originally wrote existed, the papyrus, we would see the ink smeared in many places with his own tears. Although the Apostle Paul had very strong words for his Jewish countrymen who had openly rejected the Messiah, we read in Romans, his deep grief for his people. And Paul writes in that chapter, he says he would, he would willingly come under the curse of God if his own countrymen could be saved. And Paul grieved and he wept over Christians in the church who were tangled in sin. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 4, the apostle wrote to the disobedient believers, he says, out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. Philippians 3.18, Paul sheds even more tears over people who had left the faith and committed apostasy, demonstrating they were not among the elect people of God. And Paul writes of these former colleagues who had gone apostate, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, they glory in their shame and their minds are set on earthly things. And so the Apostle Paul's ministry was marked by humility, a willingness to bear the burdens of others around him. He served the church sacrificially. You know, friends, Paul never demanded financial compensation for his labor, as we're reminded in verse 34. He had no problem receiving financial compensation when it didn't burden the church and uh, when it didn't get in the way of the gospel. He served the Lord in humility. He endured pain. He endured shame. He endured rejection from the religious establishment. He was thrown into prison. He was flogged in 
ways that he didn't deserve, just as Christ endured all of those things in his own earthly ministry. What an example of humility we have in the ministry and life of Paul, who, out of his own depth of pastoral experience, writes in Galatians 6 to and commands us that we would bear the burdens of one another and so fulfill the law of Christ. Humility. It is an essential mark of every qualified spiritual leader, pastor, elder, deacon in the local church. It was a defining characteristic of Christ who humbled himself to the point of death on the cross. It was a defining characteristic of the Apostle Paul. It must define the character and the leadership of every pastor and every elder. All those who are commanded in the Bible to exercise spiritual authority, but never ever to abuse that authority or to act in a domineering manner. Because leadership in the kingdom of God is servant leadership. It is putting others above and before ourselves. Well, the first mark that Paul wants us to imitate is his humility. The second mark of his ministry, according to the text here, is Paul's willingness to teach and preach the gospel without compromise. Let's look again at verses 20 and 21 of the text. Verse 20, Paul says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. If you study through the New Testament, friends, you will find very quickly, Paul is not the kind of preacher who's out to tickle ears. Paul is not the kind of preacher who wants to sugarcoat the truth. He is not the kind of man who will shrink back from the tough stuff and the hard teaching. Paul never held back anything that he believed would be of spiritual benefit for the church, even if that meant rebuking and correcting one of his colleagues who had fallen into error. We know that happened on one occasion. Paul had to correct a fellow apostle. He had to correct the apostle Peter, who had fallen into error. Unfortunately, in our modern context, there are some issues of doctrine and practice that pastors are afraid to address. And they will not address from the pulpit. Why not? Because they're afraid. The fear of man, the fear of offending the congregation, the fear of causing division. In our own days, it there's a new one we can add to the list, the fear of a falling foul of the civil authorities. We've seen that, haven't we, in, in recent times. But for the Apostle Paul, there was no doctrine in the Bible that was off limits. If God revealed it, Paul would preach it. No hesitation, no reservation, no downplaying it whatsoever. And this is one reason why Pastor Lucas makes it his usual practice to preach through the Bible in an expository manner. An expository manner, letting the Scripture to set the agenda for the sermon. Letting the Bible set the agenda for Christ's church. Not the preacher setting the agenda, the, the Bible sets the agenda. You preach through the Bible in an expository manner, a sequential manner. You go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, as the normal pattern of preaching on the Lord's Day. By the way, it's not wrong to have a, a topical series every now and then. But the main diet, the main diet of Christ church ought to be expository preaching. Because when we work through the Scripture systematically, sequentially over months and years, 
You know, you can't avoid anything. You can't avoid any issue. You can't avoid any topic. All of the things that we tend to to squirm at and that make us feel uncomfortable, they are going to be addressed from the pulpit. All Scripture is God-breathed. Everything written in this book is written for our instruction. Paul preached the whole counsel of God. He did not hold back. Second thing, verse 20 We learn that Paul preached God's Word everywhere he went. I think it's true to say that in in our own uh, Western culture today, there is a growing sense in North America that religion is a private affair. Religion is not for the public sphere. Religion is a private affair. It's fine to discuss within your own home. It's fine to discuss within the four walls of your church building, but keep it there. Don't ever bring it into the public square. But for the Apostle Paul, the gospel was a public issue. Christianity is a public issue. And that is why Paul preached about Christ everywhere he could. He, he preached about Christ in the marketplace as he made the tents. He, he preached about Christ in the synagogues. He preached about Christ in the churches. He even went house to house, it says, preaching about Christ. And so this is Paul. He preached about everything in the Bible. He preached everywhere that he went. Thirdly, verse 21, Paul preached to everyone God put in his path without any discrimination at all. Today in our culture, again, there's a conviction, a growing conviction among many that Christianity is a Western religion. It's actually not true. But many people see Christianity as primarily a Western religion, that Christianity is a remnant of our colonial history, and it should not be imposed on anyone who comes from different religious traditions or backgrounds. We live now in this climate in North America and much of the Western world of religious pluralism and relativism. What's good for you is good for you. What's good for me is good for me. You have your religion, and I have my religion. Unfortunately, um, the, the state religion, secular humanism, is becoming more and more aggressive, and it's starting not to be live and let live, but it's starting to be forced on us uh, quite aggressively. But for Paul the Apostle, the gospel was a message that everyone in the Roman Empire needed to hear. And Paul was willing to put himself on the line to share the good news of salvation with the Jews and the Greeks because he was convinced there is only one pathway to salvation. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so this postmodern notion that all religions are equally true and valid is a proposition Paul and the apostles would have found completely unacceptable because they understood all of humanity has sinned against Creator God. There is no religious system able to reconcile us with the God who made us and who loves us. The only way for sinful human beings to be brought back into a right relationship with a perfectly holy God is for God to do it Himself. For God to bridge the gap Himself, and that is exactly what He did. He sent Christ to die in the place of lost sinners. And why did He do that? He did it so that men and women and boys and girls from every tongue, tribe, and nation and ethnicity would be brought into one family under the Lordship and authority of Christ Jesus All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We read that promise to Abraham back in Genesis 12, and you understand the vast scope of God's redemptive plan. It crosses cultural boundaries. It crosses the boundaries of ethnicity. 
where God said, in you, Abram, in your offspring, every family on the earth will be blessed. And so you see, brothers and sisters, Paul was absolutely uncompromising when it came to the message about Christ. He did not preach a message of easy believism. This was not pray the sinner's prayer and go on to live a carnal, sinful life. It's not the message that Paul preached. Paul did not preach prosperity gospel. He was no televangelist promising health and wealth in exchange for faith and finances. No, the Apostle Paul preached the unequivocal lordship and kingship of Jesus Christ and the absolute necessity of repentance and faith. And he preached that it was necessary for us to turn away from sin, to repent of sin, and to turn to the Savior receiving His grace through faith alone. Paul did not shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God. Paul did not attempt to keep the gospel message pent up within the four walls of the church building. He didn't limit the message to any single cultural, ethnic, ethnic group. This wasn't good news only for Jewish people. It was good news for all people. And because of his uncompromising approach to gospel proclamation, Paul said at the end of his ministry in Ephesus, he said, I have no blood on my hands. He made the message crystal clear. He laid all the cards out on the table. If anyone did not believe the message that he preached about Christ, it was not for lack of knowledge. It was not for lack of warning. Paul preached faithfully, and then at night he laid his head on the pillow with a clear conscience before God and man. He trusted in God to do the convicting, the drawing, and the converting. Paul served the Lord with humility. He he preached the gospel without compromise. Verses 22 to 24, we're reminded there that Paul persevered with courageous faith. Look with me again at verses 22 to 24. He writes there, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul is now at the end of his third missionary journey, and he has a clear sense from the Holy Spirit that what awaits him on the road ahead is suffering and imprisonment. Now, I think if, if most of us were told... If you continue on your way to Jerusalem, you're going to be arrested and thrown into prison. If you are faced with that kind of knowledge about the future, you or me might have been tempted to run in the opposite direction and to pull a Jonah, but not Paul. Paul, you see, knew the character of God. Paul had learned by experience the best place to be is in the center of God's will. Now, Paul doesn't have a martyr complex. Paul is not actively seeking after persecution, but Paul is not going to avoid it if that is God's plan for his life. He won't avoid suffering if, if the suffering will further the interests of the kingdom. The Apostle Paul knew right from the Damascus Road conversion, suffering was part of God's plan for his life. He embraced the cross. He knew that he would never suffer in vain. And Satan could unleash all of his fury upon the Apostle Paul, but the Apostle believed in the sovereignty of God. 
in the providence of God, he knew beyond any doubt God's plan cannot be thwarted by the enemy. God uses our suffering to advance the interests of his kingdom. We don't always understand that. We don't always like that, but it is true. God uses our suffering to advance the interests of his kingdom. Just think about some of the suffering that Paul endured and how God used it. Think about the story of the Philippian jailer converted with his entire family. If Paul had not been thrown into that jail, that jailer would never have heard the message of God's saving grace. What sinful men intend for our harm, God intends for our good because He is the God who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Not just some things, all things. Now, from a purely human perspective, none of us would envy Paul. None of us would envy the sufferings he endured. The difference in Paul's outlook, according to verse 24, is that his eyes were fixed on the prize. As a slave of Jesus Christ, Paul had one main priority in his life. That was to glorify God and to proclaim the good news of salvation. Evergreen, as you think about elders, as you think about biblically qualified leadership, I want to encourage you, choose only men who are willing to suffer loss for the sake of Christ. Do not choose men who do not want to suffer loss for the sake of Christ. At the church where I pastor at Rosedale Baptist, we have just gone through a year-long process of training and selecting elders. We, we trained three men, and we selected and installed two of those men recently. And I'll tell you this, when we interview and when we work with prospective elders, one of the questions that we now ask on this side of COVID are you willing to go to jail? Are you willing to go to jail? Are you willing to lose your property? Are you willing to put your assets on the line for the sake of Christ and the gospel? Because a pastor who is not willing to lose his assets, a pastor who is not willing to lose his property, a pastor who is not willing to go to jail for the sake of Christ is not the kind of pastor that you need or want in, in the times that we're now living. That is not the kind of pastor that you need or want. Elders are shepherds. They are not hirelings. A real pastor, a real elder, is not here just to collect a paycheck. That's a hireling. A shepherd is here to lead the flock of Christ. And the Canadian church needs elders and pastors who are willing to stand firm on the truth of God's Word and are willing to suffer for that truth if and when the need arises. And I do believe that COVID was just the tip of the iceberg. I think we've got very, very serious challenges on the road ahead, and if we are not willing to suffer for Christ, we are, we are going to lose. If we are not willing to suffer for Christ. Brethren, there's so much here in Acts 20 we can learn from Paul's example. Pastors and elders are called to serve the Lord with humility, putting the concerns of others before their own concern exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, being examples to the flock. Secondly, pastors and elders are to teach and preach the word without compromise. We do not hold back any doctrine or admonition or exhortation that would be a benefit to the flock. Pastor who does not preach the orthodox apostolic gospel or who waters down the message to suit the tastes of the audience will be guilty of the blood of those who he failed to warn. 
Make no mistake about it, friends, to be an elder, to be a pastor, to be a minister of the gospel is a very solemn responsibility. Because we elders will one day stand before the chief shepherds, the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, and we will give an account of our ministry. And finally, pastors and elders are to persevere in the faith, firm to the end. We submit our lives to the sovereignty of God. We suffer affliction for the sake of the gospel. We keep our eyes firmly fixed on the finish line ahead. And so these are the things that we learn from Paul's example. But we come down to the second, final section of the text, verses 28 to 32. And here in these final verses, there are two additional exhortations to the Ephesian pastors. The first exhortation Paul gives to these men is found in the first half of verse 28. He says there, verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves. Now, when we think about God's expectation for pastors and for pastoral ministry in general, what comes to your mind in terms of what you're looking for in a pastor? Probably the thing that stands out most in your mind or in the minds of most Christians is the abilities that a pastor has to perform their duties with competence and skill. And so this is what we look for. Can can this man preach and teach effectively? Is this a people person? Can this person relate well with other people? Is he a good counselor? Is this man a leader? Will people follow him? Can he perform the administrative duties of the role? Is he experienced in evangelism? Those are the types of things that stand out in our minds when we we look at elders in the local church. But hear this, friends, in God's eyes, the character of your pastors, the character of your elders is every bit as important as the duties they fulfill. Their character is every bit as important as their competence. The old English Puritan John Owen, one of my favorite Puritans, He wrote something about pastoral ministry that's very sobering and and true. John Owen said this, A minister can fill his pews, he can fill his communion role in the mouths of the public. But what that minister is in secret before God Almighty, that he is and no more. You can have a full church, you can have the offering plate full, but what the minister is in secret before God, that he is and no more. You see, brethren, God cares about the character of pastors, which is why the apostle begins his exhortation for a call to self-examination. He tells these men, men, pay careful attention to yourselves. We've all seen enough scandal in the media and the North American church. We know that a certificate of ordination, a seminary degree, a full auditorium on Sunday morning, that does not in any way guarantee that a pastor is committed to godliness or that a pastor is somehow immune to temptation and sin. Here's something to understand. Pastors are human. (laughs) Pastors are human beings, just like everybody else. We are prone to the same temptations. We are prone to the same sins. We are prone to the same pitfalls as the people who sit in the pew listening to our preaching week after week. And I know this is going to be hard to believe, but even Pastor Lucas is a fallen sinner. He's a forgiven fallen sinner. And if you don't believe me, you can ask Hannah, and I'm sure that she'd be happy to confirm it for you. This is why it is essential for those of us in ministry, we must be on our guard. We must engage in ongoing self-examination. 
We strive to ensure our priorities in life and ministry line up with the priorities that God outlines in His Word. We strive to make sure our motivations for preaching are pure and not selfish. You know you can preach a great sermon for all of the wrong reasons. It cannot be all about me and not about Christ. And it can be a, a perfect sermon, and it can be all wrong. We labor for the applause of God and never for the applause of men. We must strive to invest in our marriages so that no hint of sexual immorality begins to take root. We continually examine our lives in the light of passages such as 1 Timothy 3, where the qualifications for elders are outlined. We keep in our minds the warning of James 3, verse 1, those who publicly handle God's Word with authority will be judged with greater strictness on the day of judgment. Not many of you should be teachers, James warned. You will be judged with greater strictness. The Apostle Paul does not go into detail here in his sermon in Acts 20 about what pastors are to watch out for, but in 1 Timothy 4.16, he instructs his young disciple Timothy to be on guard in two specific areas. Paul said to Timothy, Timothy, keep a close eye on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save yourself and your hearers. Paul instructed his younger colleague, watch your lifestyle carefully. Watch your doctrine carefully. Make sure you are not leading the flock into theological or moral error. You know, one of the roles that I have played in our association of Baptist churches, I, I've helped to oversee the ordination process of young men discerning God's call into vocational ministry. And during the, the ordination process and the ordination council, we examine the lifestyle and the doctrine of the young men. And we ask them very pointed, specific questions. What do you believe? How are you leading your family? How are you growing in godliness? We make sure that their answers line up with the revealed truth of the Bible. Pastors must be held accountable. Their lifestyle, their doctrine, this cannot be overemphasized in the life of a spiritual leader, and I know that Lucas takes both of these areas very seriously. I served for two years very closely with Lucas in pastoral ministry. You have a wonderful pastor. You have a wonderful man leading your congregation. The sincere desire of every godly pastor and elder is to glorify the Lord Jesus in every possible way. I want to honor Christ in the lifestyle I lead. I want to honor Him in the doctrines that I preach. As a covenanting member of my own fellowship, I am accountable to the members of my church. I'm accountable to them for the doctrines that I teach. I'm accountable to them for my lifestyle. And I'm accountable to my fellow elders, to the dear brothers who share with me the responsibility of shepherding the flock of Rosedale Baptist Church. Paul instructs the Ephesian elders, pay careful attention to yourselves. Pay attention to your life and your doctrine. Secondly, verses 29 to 32, he exhorts the same men, pay close attention to the flock under your care. As elders and shepherds of a flock, we have a responsibility to care for the flock. We, we recognize how precious the church is to God. I love the way that Paul emphasizes the value of the church here in verse 28. He reminds the pastors, these men and women who you preach to, that you minister to, they are blood-bought. He purchased them with his own blood. 
He loved them that much. He purchased them with His own blood. And if God loves His elect enough to send His sinless Son to die in their place as their substitute, how precious should the redeemed church be to elders and pastors? The church is not perfect, but the church is precious. The apostle considered his flock to be precious. This is one reason why when he left Ephesus this final time, there were tears. This was a painful affair. Paul loved these people with the love of Christ, and the church loved Paul. Why did they love Paul so much? He was a faithful pastor. He was a faithful shepherd. He was a faithful minister of the Word. And that's the way it ought to be in every church. You should love Pastor Lucas and his family. And Pastor Lucas should love you as members of Christ's flock. Second requirement for pastors given in verses 29 to 31 is that we defend the flock. Shepherd has a staff that is a weapon to fight off the wolves. A shepherd is a warrior. The shepherd defends the sheep against wolves who kill and destroy. And the, the pastor has this responsibility before God to identify false teaching and false teachers. The good pastor is always on the lookout for threats on the horizon. It's very likely that during Paul's one-year hiatus from Ephesus, false teachers had come into the church, and these men were trying to undermine the gospel that Paul had preached to them as they'd done in Galatia, and they did it in so many of the cities. They tried to corrupt the gospel. False teaching was a problem in Paul's day. False teaching is a problem today. If you haven't noticed, there's a lot of false teaching in the church. There's a lot of false teachers that we need to be on guard for. As a pastor, I care about the physical safety and well-being of my congregation, but far more than their physical safety, I care infinitely more about their spiritual safety, their spiritual protection. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Well, friends, we've covered a lot of ground today here in Acts 20, Paul's instruction for pastors and elders in closing, I just want to encourage you as the members of this congregation, keep Lucas and his family in continual prayer. Don't neglect to pray for your pastor and for his family. Pray that Lucas, pray that Pastor Lucas will keep a close eye on his life and doctrine. And that Lucas will faithfully shepherd not only this church, but he will faithfully shepherd his family. Pray that Lucas's ministry might be used to equip the saints for the work of ministry here in our nation's capital. I, I believe that this is a strategic church located a stone's throw from Ottawa in our nation's capital. This is a very important church. Pray that Lucas might serve the Lord with humility and joy, that he would not become puffed up, that he would not stand in this pulpit with the wrong motives on the Lord's day that he might be courageous in the pulpit, that he would teach God's Word without compromise. Pray that Pastor Lucas would be a man of courage, that he will endure persecution, that he will bear up under adversity, that he will live a life above reproach. And Evergreen, as you pray diligently for your own pastor and his family, I want to encourage you, pray that the Lord will raise up in His providence more men in this local assembly who can share with Lucas in this tremendous responsibility. Because the normative pattern that we find in the New Testament is never one man. It's always a plurality of elders. This is the normative pattern, a plurality of shepherds. 
And I know that that's what this church is working towards. And as you're praying for the leadership of your church, you are intentionally training and identifying qualified shepherds. I want you to be assured that your friends at Rosedale Baptist are also praying. We are praying regularly for you. For the time being, the elders at Rosedale, we are providing the accountability and assistance that Lucas needs in his ministry. But our prayer, our desire for Evergreen is that you will very soon, in God's own timing, have your own council of elders, a plurality of biblically qualified men, and that the Lord will make it clear to Lucas and to all of the members of this local assembly who those men are. And that's what we're praying for. And so may the Lord bless you, Evergreen, as you move forward in faith and obedience. And may the Lord in His grace instill all of these marks of a healthy and mature church that you are studying and looking at in this sermon series. Let's pray.